What a statement we just made in the hymn that we sang, how vast the benefits divine which we in Christ possess. That's, that's a true statement, and it's a statement that is uh, a reflection of the fundamental theme of the passage that we're considering now tonight, John chapter 2. The passage is uh, laid out in our bulletin tonight, but also there is a Bible in front of you. If you have your own Bibles with you, that's great. I'd like you to turn to the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, and we're going to read um, in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and we're going to read just through verse 12. As we focus tonight on a passage, I think, that is somewhat uh, familiar to most of us, although it may not be all that familiar to you here tonight, or maybe at least some of the details may not be familiar to you. This is, this is an occasion where Jesus in his three-year ministry, performs his first miracle. The miracle of turning water into wine. What is the significance of that? What is Jesus really saying through that? And what does that mean for you and me? And also, what does it mean for us in the celebration of the Lord's Supper? Well, that's what we are going to consider. So, draw your attention with me, if you would, to John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. One. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Maybe you're saying, well, where is Cana? Cana is about four miles from the larger city of Jerusalem. So there's a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely... Then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So that's the record of Jesus with his disciples, Mother Mary, at a wedding and a wedding reception. And the first of his miracles in his three-year public ministry, the changing of water into wine. You know, when you read this, does it ever strike you when you read the Bible where, you know, you have something significant going on here. You have a wedding. uh, You have a wedding reception. There's a lot that goes on. There's a lot of planning. There's a lot of things going on. People interact with each other. It's quite an involved Uh, affair, and yet John really doesn't give us a whole lot of details. 
about what's going on here. In fact, he, uh, he gets straight to the very point in this passage about the wine running out and Jesus changing the water into wine, and, and then we get to try to understand the, the significance of that. And I, I want you to ask yourself the question tonight, what, what is the, what, in your mind, what it, beyond this just being the first miracle of Jesus where he's demonstrating that he is the Messiah, beyond that, what is the significance in your mind of Jesus changing water into wine? Play around with that in your head just a bit. I want to begin with this. Um, this past week, um, as you probably can imagine, and Joy and I are already beginning, kind of the beginning stages of our move. And I don't know if, how many of you have moved recently, but if you have, um, you will remember quite acutely that it is amazing how much stuff you accumulate. This is all a part of American culture. I mean, we have way more than what we need, right? And we're, we're going through this stuff, especially Joy's going through all the stuff. And it, it just, it, it kind of strikes you, and it struck her as well, that, that we just accumulate so much. And you, you sometimes forget actually what you have especially keepsakes. And it was just a few weeks ago, I just happened to be thinking about this and some of the time that I spent in the military, and I thought to myself, I wonder where my dog tags went for my military service. And just a few days after that, she comes in and she goes, look what I found. And I'm like, my dog tags. And it still has the keys to my military locker that was at the end of my bed in basic training. And then I look at that and I go, that's right. And it says, Grotenheis, Philip D., and it gives my social security number, which I'm not going to say publicly. And then it says, I was uh, raised in the Christian Reformed Church. So it says, Christ Reformed, that was my religion. And then it goes, oh, and then I go, yeah, A positive. That's my blood type. No wonder I got COVID, right? They say the A, the a blood. I don't know if you believe that. But anyway, and then um, I found one other thing. And she, she also let me know this. She says, you know, this is what I found too. And I thought, so I'm looking through this and I go, and it's dated January 14, 1986, and it was when I was in the military, and we, we, uh, our unit went to Germany for what's called reforger exercises. And I started reading this, and I'll make this short, but I'm like, this is so embarrassing. Um, it was just, it was the, the, the grammar is off, there's spelling mistakes, and just the things that I said, and even at times, I'm sorry, but the language that I used in here, I was in the Army at the time, it's like, I'm thinking, you know, um, I'm not going to leave this line around, I'll tell you that. So, and I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, that was, that was and, and some of you who are in your middle-aged years now, if you've, if you've ever kept any of your stuff and you read what you wrote when you're around between 16 and 20, it is embarrassing. And you realize, that was my old self. And if God is at work in your life, he's sanctifying you, and you're growing. And so when I, when I look at this, I go, it's, it's a, you say, why are you sharing this? It's because this is a reflection between the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The difference between the Old and New Testament is like the difference between this, the old fill and then the, and the new fill, between the unformed fill and the more fully formed fill, I guess you could say, the immature fill and the more now as an adult, the mature fill. The, the difference between um, anticipation in our younger years of wanting to be adult and then the realization that now we are adult. The, different the difference between a time of preparation and a time of fulfillment. Now, why do I bring that out? It's because that's exactly what we find here in our passage. What we have in Jesus' 
and I'm not going to give it all away here, but when Jesus changes the water and the wine, he's saying this is a transition point. We're removing out of Old Covenant, Old Testament times, a time of immaturity, a time of childhood or teenage years, and now we're moving into adulthood with all the, yes, responsibilities of the adulthood, but all the privileges, all the benefits of adulthood. Well, what are those benefits? Ah, that's what we're going to consider here tonight. So without further ado, take a look at the passage if you would. First thing we read is on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. As I said, Cana was about four miles from Jerusalem, major city. And all it says is that the mother of Jesus was there. So it's not even Jesus who is mentioned here first. This is Mother Mary. Then Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So that's, that's all it gives in terms of the introduction here. So we got three major players here. We have Mary, Jesus' earthly mother, and then we have, we have Jesus and his disciples. We don't know why they're at the, at the wedding. Likely, they're probably related to somebody in the wedding, or at least, or at least friends, and they're invited. They're invited to this wedding. Okay, um, and also you notice that there's someone whose name is absent here. Now think about that. Whose name is absent? We got Jesus, the disciples, Mary. Where's Joseph? We don't know. Some commentators say Joseph may not have been alive at this time. That that Joseph had died. In fact, I don't know if you know this or if you remember this, but in the Bible, you don't read about Joseph after Jesus is 12 years old. Remember when Jesus was 12 years old, his parents went looking for him. Remember where they found him? They found him in the temple. After that, you read nothing about Joseph. So he's out of the picture for whatever reason. Probably died. But anyway, um, apart from that, we're not given a lot of details, as I said. And what John does in this passage, when you look at the text closely and you follow the story, you see that he gets right to the point of the story. And, and, and the initial point of the story is this. The wine runs out. So you got a wedding, and you got a wedding reception. Some weddings are dry. Some of them are wet, as we say. And sometimes, you know, today they provide a wet bar. Well, at least in this occasion, there is wine that is served, which was typical during that time. And so we read that Mary informs Jesus that the wine has run out. Now, this... This is potential embarrassment for the groom's family because the groom's family was typically at the time, the custom was that the groom's family provided um, all the goodies and all the, the food and all the drink at the wedding reception. And Mary notices that the wine runs out. She probably feels bad for the groom's family or is connected to the groom's family in some way. And so she goes to Jesus, figuring who he is, and maybe is the... Messiah, with his powers, can maybe rectify this situation. So she's very short with Jesus, and she's like, um, the wine has run out. In other words, uh, you know, she doesn't go to anybody else and say that. She goes to Jesus. In other words, maybe maybe could, could do something about this. And did you notice Jesus' response? It's recorded in verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. How many of us have ever addressed our mothers as woman? Ooh, yeah, we run into trouble with that, wouldn't we? You know, I, I don't think I'd ever, I ever called my, I call mom, mom, you know, maybe muttered a few things under my breath upon occasion, but I never call her woman, you know. That, 
you know, so our immediate response, the reader's response is like, that's, that's kind of, that's Jesus. He's being disrespectful to his mother. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but this is a particular problem passage for Muslims. You know, the Muslims refer to the New Testament as Injil. It means just the Gospels, the first, first four books of the Bible. And the Muslims believe that the Quran is the final revelation, and the, and the Injil, as it's recorded for us, there's a number of mistakes here. And this is one such case where you have a mistake, according to the Muslim, because if Jesus was the great prophet of Allah, and if the Christians say he is the very son of God, he would never have treated his mother like this. He would never have addressed her as woman. What I want to say here tonight is this is not a mistake. But when Jesus is addressing his mother here, he's not, he's not being disrespectful, okay? But, but he is being abrupt. His mother was kind of abrupt with him. Uh, they have no wine. Jesus' response is just as abrupt. Woman, what, what, is, what does this have to really do with, with me, right? Um, my, and then he goes on to say, my hour is not yet come. Okay, what is he saying here? What, what, what's the significance of his words? The significance of his words are, are these. He's basically saying to his mother, listen, um, I, you recognize that there's no wine, and you want me to rectify that situation. You want me to fix it. But I have to tell you something, and he doesn't say it in these exact words, but he's getting at this. Listen, I'm not some genie in the bottle that can fix your problem and just fulfill your desires. I'm the son of God. I am the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. And as a Messiah, I have come to bring the blessings of my Messiahship. I am the king of the universe, and I've come to bring all the benefits and all the blessings of my kingdom, which, which are imaged, reflected in the picturesque lim- uh, language of the Old Testament of free-flowing wine. You ever recognize that if you read the Old Testament, how when the people of God were sinning against their God, we call it covenant breaking. That is, when you think of covenant breaking, just think about turning your back on God. And when God's people turn their back on God, and instead of going in this direction, they're going in this direction, what happened is that physical things happened, such as Armies, foreign armies came upon them and defeated them, but also drought came about. And one of the indications that God's people were were in the midst of their covenant breaking and God was actually punishing them, disciplining them, was that when, when the vineyards ran dry and there were no grapes for wine, but when the people of God were walking in covenant with God, God would bless them and the, the wine would flow freely. And one of the indications of the people of God that the Messiah one day would come would be that when he came, he would bring the benefits of the kingdom that were reflected now in free-flowing, wonderful, quality wine. However, the blessings, the full blessings of the kingdom of God, says Jesus, will not come until my hour has come. So when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You're kind of like, as you're reading it, like, what is he talking about? In the Gospel of John, when those, that phrase is used, the hour, it's talking about the hour of his suffering and his death. So when Jesus first comes on the scene, he begins to preach. The first thing he preaches is this, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God, my rule, and the blessings that come with my rule are now at hand. 
But when he says, my hour is not yet come, he's saying, but those blessings, the fullness of those blessings will not come until after I atone for the sins of my people and I reconcile them to the Father. The hour is the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ, but also this, what Jesus is saying here is this. The fullness of the blessings of the kingdom will not come until I suffer, I die on the cross, but also this. They will not come until after my resurrection, my ascension into heaven, my being seated at the right hand of God, and the pouring forth of my spirit. And when that spirit is poured forth upon my people, he brings with him the fullness of the blessings of the kingdom of God. Woman, mom, mother, that hour has not yet come. However, however, now, in this time in my, and, and in this place, I will fulfill your need. And when I do that in this first miracle at the beginning of my ministry, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a taste now of what is to come, the fullness of the blessings. How does he do that? All right, let's pick up on the story again. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So these are big jars. Now, notice Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves a good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Let's just stop there for just a moment. All right, so try to picture this. You have this wedding, you have the wedding reception, and then you got these, these six water pots, let's call them water pots, jars. So, Fix your image on those jars. First of all, there's six of them. There's jars. There's six of them. They're empty, and they can hold a lot, 20 to 30 gallons. And not only that, but those pots are used for what we call Jewish purification rites, connect with Judaism, connect with what we call Old Covenant practices. Okay. Then what Jesus does is he... Just moving on quick in the story, Jesus says to these servants there, at like the waiters at the reception, he says, uh, you know, fill them up. Fill these water jar, uh, jars up. What do they do? They fill them up, and John adds that phrase, to the brim. I'm going to get back to that in just a moment. Because okay. when you read your Bibles, sometimes you see they just didn't fill it up, but they filled it up to the brim. When you read that, ask yourself the question, why, why did the Gospel writer John include just that phrase? So they filled them up with water, filled them up to the brim. And then what Jesus did, okay, and here's his first miracle. He silently, imperceptibly, but also powerfully, changes that water into wine. The head waiter comes over. He sees these jars. Now imagine that, 20, 30 gallons each of wine. I think they're going to have enough wine. Okay, And, and he, he goes and he... He, he can't figure out, what, what, who did this? Where did this come from? The servants who did what Jesus asked, oh, they know what happened. 
They knew that they, that's attributable to Jesus. This guy doesn't, the head waiter. So he tastes the wine. And this is pretty good wine. In fact, it's high-quality wine. Okay. Now, and he's thinking to himself, like, okay, this, this doesn't fit with which is normal practice. Because typically at a reception, they give the best wine first, and then the, the cheaper, more inexpensive wine they give later. You go like, well, why is that? Kids maybe wonder, well, why is that? Well, kids, you really don't realize this until you get older as an adult, but they serve the best wine because they want to give a good first impression. And then once you start drinking that wine, sometimes you can drink a little bit too much and you get a little inebriated. You get a little what they call the buzz going on. And then the taste buds are somewhat affected. And then, well, at that time, you know, you just give the cheaper wine and most of the people are not going to really draw a big distinction between really good wine and cheaper wine. You know, they've already maybe had a little bit too much to drink. But he's looking at this, and he's going, but, but they kept the best. This, none of this is switched around. They've kept the best wine, the wine that Jesus changed, the, the water they changed the wine. They kept the best wine for last. Okay. But, but really, if you, if you start digging underneath all this, this is some significant things going on. So, so what's happening here? When Jesus changes that water into wine, what he's really saying, remember the old covenant language of when, when the blessings of God come, they come in the form of free-flowing wine, or at least in the image of free-flowing wine. Jesus is really saying, here I am in my first miracle. I'm announcing the coming of the kingdom, and I have come to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God. When you look at those water pots, notice Notice some things about the blessings of God. First of all, they're not stingy. Remember, we looked at that last week. God is a generous God. So when he comes to bring blessing, the blessings of the kingdom, he's not stingy, but those blessings are sumptuous. Notice that Jesus says, just don't, just don't fill it up halfway. That'll be good enough. He says, he says, fill all six water jars up. And then what those guys do is they fill it to the brim. That's a symbol of fullness, the fullness of the blessings of God. So they fill it up to the brim. Secondly, not only are the blessings of the kingdom of God uh, sumptuous, full, but they're sweet. Sweet. Water's bland. Wine. You'll notice that if you have wine here tonight. The wine is sweet. When you you taste that wine and you sense its sweetness, you kind of go, oh yeah, the sweetness and the fullness of the blessings of the kingdom. And then thirdly, not only are those blessings sumptuous, not only are they sweet, but they're superior. They're superior to the, the, the partial blessings before the Messiah came, before Jesus came, the partial blessings of the Old Covenant, represented by the six pots that were used for Jewish purification rites. John didn't have to add that, but he did to make this very point. The blessings of God are sumptuous, They're sweet, and they're superior to what we find in the Old Covenant. Now, I keep using that term, the blessings of the kingdom of God. What do we mean by that? Here are the blessings that Jesus Christ has come to bring, all represented in this first miracle. The blessing of the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with Almighty God. Fundamentally, he's come for that through his atoning sacrifice. Man, we live in a world today where people think, you know, if they're, if they're thinking about God at all, they're thinking, probably most of them, God and I are all right. God and I are cool together. 
You know, he loves me, he'll take care of me, and all that, and they go on in their merry life. It's not true. The Bible says, apart from Jesus Christ, and this is going to sound very abrupt, but the wrath of Almighty God rests upon us. And that's why when you read the scriptures, like flee to Jesus, take hold of his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. That's one of the blessings, the great blessings of the kingdom of God. It's reconciliation with an almighty, holy, and a just God. Other blessings of the kingdom of God, fundamentally freedom. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from from the power of the entanglements of this world that bring us down. Freedom from the, the, the grip of demonic forces that are true and real and work in this world. It's, it's, it's freedom from the tyranny of self. And the self-destructive habits that, that, that are so easily a part of our lives. And, and finally, one of the great blessings of the kingdom of God is just a changed change direction in our life, in life itself, not only in this life, but the life to come. And then when we look at the holistic blessing of the kingdom of God, we look forward to Jesus coming again to renew the entire creation and make all things new. All of these things, all of these things are wrapped up in that whole understanding of the benefits that Christ has gained for us, the blessings of the kingdom of God. And then one other little tag on to that is this. These are the blessings that Christ has come to bring us now. But there's going to come a time when those blessings are going to come to their fullest expression and fullest enjoyment in what we call the marriage feast of the Lamb in the new creation. When Jesus performs that miracle in Cana, he's saying the blessings have come to you now, but they're going to come to you in the fullest measure when we leave this life and through faith in Christ we enter into glory, we sit at the marriage feast of the Lamb, We taste of the fullness of the blessings of God in the world to come. All of that is all wrapped up in this single but very significant miracle that Jesus performs at the beginning of his ministry. So, with that, with an understanding of the blessings that Christ has come to bring to us, one final thing, so take one minute. Take a look at the table, small table. It's, it's highly symbolic by nature. And this, this, when, when you think of this table, think of the wedding feast of Canaan. And think of the, ultimately of the, of the marriage feast of the Lamb to come. It's hard to say this is a real feast. But it doesn't mean that this, this table is an insignificant table. It's significant in showing us that Jesus Christ has come into this world to inaugurate the fullness of the blessings of the kingdom of God in this life but also the life to come. Now, my question to you tonight is, do you actually believe that? You know, when Jesus performed this miracle, I don't know if you noticed that, but in verse 11 it says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory. And then notice what it says, and his disciples believed in him. They believed that he was the Messiah. You wonder, did they understand fully the blessings that he came to bring? Probably not, at least not in their fullest measure. Not in the way that I explained it tonight. But we understand it, and thus we're more responsible. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has come to bring the blessings of the kingdom for you? Because if you do, then you come within the fencing guidelines that Pastor Michael brought out at the beginning of the service, then if you can say yes to those things, come to the table. Come to the table. 
But if you don't believe that, that Christ has done that for you, or you're not sure, then as Pastor Michael noted, rightly so, then don't come to the table. Okay? Don't come to Just observe tonight. But don't fail to come to Christ. And so I always say, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, there's a wonderful invitation that goes out to everyone that even though they may not come to the table, that doesn't mean that they can't come to Christ. Jesus says, come. Come. Repent, believe, and embrace me so that with the rest of the church of God, you may enter into the enjoyment of the blessings that Christ has come to bring. Let's think about these things when you celebrate the supper tonight. Now, Pastor Michael's going to come up. He's going to administer in just a moment. Before we do that together, uh, experience the Lord's table together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, we are so grateful that you sent your Son into this world. And Lord Jesus, we thank you, too, for this first miracle that on the surface of things simply looks like a demonstration of your deity and your power and your messiahship when, in fact, it speaks to so much more the blessings of the kingdom that you have come to bring. Oh God, as we celebrate the supper tonight, draw us to yourself. Lord, even if we just observe tonight, draw us to yourself through Jesus Christ and help us to know that in the end that we are loved and recipients of all the blessings that Jesus Christ has come to bring. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.